0: This is our third installment for uh, working with uh, ministry. Um, I've got a minor in art, and when I do things that are visual, I get locked into the visual. And they tell me it's bad form to read your PowerPoint to people, so there's no need for me to make an outline and show it to you. So that's why I'm one of the reasons I don't use PowerPoint. second reason I don't use PowerPoint is somehow we've, we've taught ourselves... That our audiences expect to bow, zip, bang, and whiz. Well, if you've seen modern technology, PowerPoint ain't keeping up with it. <laughs> so you go to Prezi or, or something animated or whatever. And then the third thing is, I got to looking at these guys that, uh, you go to a, uh, an entertainment venue where there's a stand up comedian. <clears throat> he has a stool, a glass of water, and engages his audience for two hours with content. We do our job as ministers, as Bible class teachers, with content. Okay, now if you can use PowerPoint effectively with your content, more power to you. I can't, so I don't. But uh, I'm unapologetic about it. So I just like, there's a blank screen. If you want to record my presentation, there it is. <laughs> Let's lay some groundwork about grief, and you'll find out that most of the things I talk about have interwoven themselves, even the uh, addiction, the sexuality, and now the grief is basically going to come down to, to our mindsets, some cognition, some uh, rewards and responses, uh, and, and things like that. My definition for grief comes from the American Academy of Bereavement. When life doesn't turn out like I expect it to, I suffer loss. Okay. Here's expectation. Here's reality. That gap is a grief. And that's about anything. It doesn't have to be about death. So when I talk about grieving, uh, I'm not necessarily talking about ministering to people who have uh, experienced a traumatic death of a loved one or something like that. I'm talking about any kind of when expectation doesn't meet reality. When life doesn't turn out like I expect it to, I suffer loss. And humans grieve all losses. I thought my mom and dad were going to be married, and they divorced. I thought I was going to go to this school on a scholarship, and I blew my knee out. I expected to make a 33 on the ACT and have it all paid for. And I made 12. Okay, I thought I was going to be six foot four and have black flowing locks. No, you know whatever that difference is, you're going to grieve that gap, and it doesn't have to be about death although the same model applies for it. A lot of times in my counseling practice, when somebody comes in and they're at a life transition, I talk about expectations, I talk about reality, and we walk through the grieving process. Uh, if you were trained, I don't know, I'd say in the last 20 years at least, uh, you ran into Elizabeth kubler Ross's book on death and dying. Uh, what Dr. Ross wrote about later was, that her process was not about grieving, but about dying. And we've treated grieving like dying. Dying has a a linear progression. You start here, you end here. Grieving is not a linear process. You don't start at A, go to B, go to C, go to D, go to E, and then you're finished. Grieving is one of those things that is what uh, Bill Warden calls it, is it's managing four essential tasks. And once you get those four tasks managed at the same time with some some level of skill, you've probably handled your grieving process. Uh, I like to think of it as, as a chair with four legs under it. I can sit in a chair that only has one leg if that leg's in the center. I have to be real careful. I have to have both my feet on the ground, but I can do that. I can sit in a chair with three legs. I can sit in a chair with three legs a long time. But if I shift my balance or move my weight, it'll dump me in the floor. That's why a lot of people find they're stuck in grieving because they're balancing one or more of these tasks, but they haven't finished all four tasks. So let's talk about just a little bit of those tasks of grieving. Grieving task number one is accept the reality. Period. There is a point when you end up with a traumatic loss or a sudden, what my expectations are, what my reality is, don't match. There's a point where you're going to suffer some (laughs) psychic shock. Most people who are dealing with actual bereavement or people who get a diagnosis of cancer or HIV or whatever, there's a, 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 a period of time when the reality just doesn't set in. When you're ministering to people, your major ministry time is not at the funeral or the funeral home. Your major ministry time is weeks later, sometimes months later. We're shocked by the news that, that this person passed away and we go to the funeral home and we stand in the line and we talk to the folks and tomorrow we go to dinner. Well, tomorrow their spouse is still dead. Their dad's still dead. Their daughter's still dead. And we go through these rituals... These folks live in a time where they're just in, in this place where they hadn't accepted the reality yet. You got 900 people at your house and they're bringing casseroles. <laughs> it's not reality. Okay? And then at some point you wake up and the bed's empty or there's no sounds from the upstairs room or that Mustang in the driveway didn't start or you ain't got to take that kid to ball practice because the kid's not there. And at some point down this path, you get out of what I call the fog stage. And get into the reality stage. This is this is what's happened. This is real. And there's this point where you you think the person's going to come around the corner or, or walk down the hall, and at some point the reality sets in. And says this, this is not going to change. This is so once you accept the reality, and it's different levels of time for different people for different griefs. But when you're talking with someone who's hurting, you've got to find out how much of this reality they've incorporated it into. Now once you've accepted the reality, there's going to be an emotional output. And you've got to experience and express all the emotions. As Christians, we sometimes think there are emotions that we're not allowed to have. As Christians, we, we, we think that you know if I grieve or if I'm scared or if I'm worried or if I'm mad that there's something wrong with our faith. You know, The, the passage in, in Thessalonians says, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. He doesn't say, I don't want you to grieve. I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. And so expressing and experiencing all those emotions. Read some stuff by John Gottman on emotionally intelligent children or his stuff on emotion coaching. Uh, we as a society are good at emotion dismissing, emotion disapproving, but what we need to be doing is emotion coaching. We act like our emotions are jackets we can take on and put off, or whatever. And uh, that's that's not what we teach kids. All about people, of faith don't cry, people die. Yes, they do. Uh, people, of faith, are mad at God. Yes, yes, they are. Okay. Uh, you may be mad at the deceased. You may be mad at yourself. You may be mad at somebody else. You may be mad at God. If you get mad at God, you know there's nothing you can tell God that He hasn't already seen in your heart. There's nothing you can tell God that He hasn't heard before. God is a big guy. People have been mad at Him before. As long as you don't stop talking to Him, you're probably in pretty good shape. Uh, with vehement cries, He cried out to His Father, and though He were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which He suffered. I believe Jesus had turned pretty stern talk with His Father about what was going on when it came time to go to that cross.
1: Because at one point
0: He uttered, Why have you forsaken Me? So there's no emotion that you, you're not allowed to have. Now, if you let those emotions dictate behavior, that's, that's a different deal. But, but so many times we tell our people, you can't have those emotions. What, what devastates me is that as preaching brethren, a lot of times we preach about things we haven't actually experienced. And then after we experience it, we find out we might have been wrong on some stuff. Because there are guys that said, you know, I never knew you could hurt really this bad. And they've done hundreds of funerals. When they walk away from their personal funeral, their child, their life, they realize, man, I had some of this stuff wrong. And it's not about, hey, just pray enough and you get over it. This, This is a long process. So you accept the reality, and you express and you experience appropriately all the emotions. The third task is you adjust to the new norm. A real interesting thing there. Because a lot of times we define norm by what was, or we try to define norm by what might have been. John Conley says, you can't grieve your future because you didn't actually lose it. You didn't have a guarantee that you were going to retire. You didn't have a guarantee that you were going to have a a wedding—you didn't guarantee. He "A lot of times we think about the things that aren't going to happen as if they were guaranteed for them to happen, and, and we grieve their loss when they didn't really lose anything because they didn't exist." That's that weird stuff that Conley does—that your past doesn't exist and your future doesn't exist. You're just here, okay? And so a lot of times we grieve things that 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 don't exist, and so you've got to adjust to the new norm. When we do a transitional element on a ropes course. Uh, and if you're not familiar with challenge courses or ropes courses, it's a series of activities that are based in uh, experience-based learning, and we teach stuff from them. Uh, I got into that business teaching people to repel. Uh, and when you teach somebody to, re- to slide down a, a, a rock face or a building or whatever on a rope, when you're standing on top of that thing, it's as comfortable as you can be. When you're at the bottom on a terra firma, it's as comfortable as you can be. In the middle of that stuff, stuff can go wrong. Okay, Mr. Gravity never sleeps. A lot of things happen. And so you go from a stable place to a stable place, but you go through a scary place. That's how I started experiential learning and teaching, and it went from the the vertical stuff to stuff up in the air and cables and all kinds of stuff on a ropes course. If if you're standing at a platform beside a tree or telephone pole and you start to walk out here on a 3-inch cable, When that thing gets wiggly, (coughs) you go back to where you came from. At some point out here, you make enough progress that instead of looking where you came from, you look at where you want to be. And that's a healthy transition. You're adjusting to the new norm. You quit running back to there and you start looking at what's around me, what are my assets. And adjusting to the new norm is simply learning what I've got. You know, Christmas is going to be without grandpa. I'm going to spend Thanksgiving at mom's house and Christmas at dad's house this year. I'm going to swap it next year. And instead of trying to make it not what it is, you learn to accept and deal with what it is, adjusting to the new norm. Uh, in My worn out story about teaching the rock climbing class with the one arm kid. I'm teaching people, you know, how to belay and, and how to use ropes, and this little guy with one arm tugs on my harness. Mr. Lonnie, Mr. Lonnie, I need to learn to belay. And I said, well, you know, typically people use two hands to belay. He said, well, typically I just have one.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Then he said, "Dead not I? He said, don't tell me what people with two hands can do. What can I do with the one hand I've got? And folks, that's a fairly significant statement from a seventh grade kid. It's been one of those statements outside the Bible that change your life. What can I do with what I've got? And that's about your ministry too. Don't tell me what a church across town with 900 people and four buses does. What can I do with a 15-passenger van and seven kids? No, don't tell me what a church does with 15 elders and 37 deacons. What can me and these two old shepherds do with what we've got? Well, instead of defining your life by what was, you start celebrating and getting comfortable with the parameters of what is. And then at some point, you do have a future focus. You invest your grieving energy into something new. So I've left this stable platform. I'm going out here and having to work on learning my balance, having to surround myself with resources that will keep me balanced or with people that will keep me balanced. And then I start looking at where I'm going. And that may be ministering to other people who are grieving. It may be writing a blog. It may be just simply... Keeping your ear to the ground, knowing that, hey, because I've gone through this experience, I probably have some insight into someone else who might go through it. And so you start reinvesting your grieving energy into something future. And that is from William Warden, known as the Four Tasks of Grieving. Let me take a breath and ask if there's any questions about that process or those four things. What was the fourth one? Reinvest your grieving energy into something new. What was the man's name? William Warden, Uh, W-A-R-D-E-N. I ran into him at the American Academy of Bereavement uh, and his his presentation there. Other questions?
1: What do you mean grieving energy?
0: Um, A lot of times your life is defined by some ritual. And I'm going to get up and, and and go think about my loved one. I'm going to look through the picture albums. I'm going to watch the old movies. I'm going to go sit at the, the funeral home. I'm going to go to the gravesite. Uh, I'm going to think about that. Oh, today he and I would be doing this. Or she and I would be doing that. And, and that energy you used in, in thinking about the loss, or price, you reinvest that energy something else. Okay. not uh, do like you
2: want something good to come out of
0: something that's bad? Probably, I wouldn't say it that way, but I just don't think that way. Uh, it, it's basically just saying, uh, okay, during hunting season, I spend an awful lot of time climbing trees. When it's not hunting season, there's no reason to climb a tree. So I shoot my bow. Because <laughs> I can't climb a tree. Well, I can't climb, but anyway. It's, it, so I, I'm switching how I use my energy. Uh, what you'll find out when you start getting people to think about how they're using their energy, you're going to find a change on two modalities. Uh, grieving... Those, those days when something tilts your chair and you have a bad spot are going to have frequency and intensity. So I'm going to have a debilitating emptiness in my heart four times a day on a scale of 1 to 10 it's a 10. Somewhere down the line, you're only going to have that four times a day and it's a 7. Somewhere down the line, you're going to have it once a day and it's a 4. You're going to get a change in frequency or intensity and when you're really making progress you'll see a change in frequency and intensity and it's a natural process that's the hard part about ministering to people who are grieving people grieve at different paces some people go back to a pretty regular routine in just a month some people go in six months some people don't ever go for a year or two but it, and, and you know, I sit in my office and say you know, you're paying large sums of money to sit here for me to tell you this is a matter of time And everything you've expressed to me seems to be normal. Uh, When I see complicated grieving or traumatic grieving or toxic grieving, that becomes an issue of therapy. But for the most part, I walk folks through, hey, what you're telling me, what you're feeling, what you're doing, what you're experiencing is normal. If it's still this way at Christmas, I need to see you again. (coughs) But for the most part, this is a time process. It is going to happen. You're going to get over it. If people don't get over it, then there's either unfinished business, uh, unrealistic grief, or something cognitive. There's some kind of a distortion going on when people don't. But there's no real way to say you ha, you have had enough time. No, <clears throat> you know. Let's say you've had a relationship with a person for 20 years. Is it reasonable to think that you'll get over a 20 year relationship in 20 months? Is it reasonable to think that, that you'll get over a five-year relationship in five months? And so a lot of times we start giving a timetable to other people. And, and I tell folks you don't have to have a timetable. Uh, you know, One lady's daughter got killed in a pretty traumatic plane accident. And she said the thing that bothered her was she had this cheerleader stalker at church who would go, You've got to tell me you're doing better. And she said, I just avoid her at church because she's expecting me to be able to say, Yeah, today I'm better. My daughter's still dead. And I said, well, maybe you should tell her, if you're having a good day, depends on me having a good day, we're both going to have bad days. <laughs> you may just have to set limits and say, you know, I'm going to grieve. If you can eat supper with me and me cry a little bit while we're having supper, then you're comfortable. If that bothers you, then don't eat supper with me, but I'm going to grieve. <clears throat> and you can't isolate yourself because of that, but neither can you say, hey, this didn't all bother me and, and, and play some hypocritical Farce, where you, you know, act like you're hurting. Both of those things are toxic to you, and because sometimes we're ashamed to cry in public, or we're ashamed to be triggered, or we're ashamed to stuff. And people who really understand grief understand that sometimes, you know, you beat a ball game and cry, but you get over it. Uh, you have a funeral in a church building. Every time you're in the church building, you're revisiting the funeral. Please think about that. Think about the songs that that, that you're going to sing because those things are going to be triggered. And I know people who leave their home congregation for a while because every time they go back to the building, it's it's there. We've got to do a little better job with our rituals. Now, sometimes people have complicated grieving and don't get over it because of unfinished business. Statistically, people who lose their parents and have a hard time had bad relationships with their parents. You know, you think it would be Ding Dong, the witch is dead, but you know it, it's not. They they felt like that there's unfinished business, and now that stuff can never be fixed. People have a pretty good relationship with their parents, and you think we miss them the most. Realize we did everything, we said everything. There's nothing undone here. They're okay, I'm okay, and it hurts and it's troublesome. But a natural process takes place, and, and you go through that. Um, but a lot of unfinished business. One of the police officers' secretaries. I had a son uh, kill himself in Texas, and you know she she quit coming to work. She was you know there was all kinds of things going on, and and it was, it was and so they sent her to me, and we talked, and it seemed like a good relationship. They weren't really estranged. He was a, an older kid; he wasn't an adult. And I said, okay, something, something's missing here. There's an unfinished business here. She said I was making him an afghan for his birthday he died and I didn't get to finish it she said it's in my hall closet I said finish it take it to Texas put it on his headstone she did and she's retired two captains and she's still right there at the police department and every time I walk through the building she introduces me to the whoever's in her office this is the guy who helped me when my son was was, was was dead and it was just that little bit of unfinished business and it may be that you say, is there something you needed to tell your friend? Is there something you needed to say? And if there is, write it out. Say it. Put it in a balloon. Send it down the river. Burn it in a the bonfire. There's something very powerful about rituals that help us close circles in our lives. And some sometimes we don't know those are unfinished business. We don't know those are unsaid things. But exploring that with folks really, really helps them. Yes, ma'am?
1: Is it okay? Oh, yeah. Uh, what is something specific that I can say to someone who insists on picking a scab, you know, as in a, a Greek scab, it, they, it's not really even grieving anymore, but it's familiar enough to where they go back to it, pick it open, and then we go through the whole. What is it? Some specific statements I can make. As a Christian, obviously, you know, to... Well, you know, I,
0: I guess the, the, the first thing is is when I see somebody doing something and going down a thought pattern, I say, what, why are you thinking in these terms? What are you hoping to accomplish? Are you doing this in order to feel better? And does it work? Well, if it doesn't work, don't do it. Sometimes those kind of things are kind of agenda driven. There's one of the lady speakers, hey, maybe Sheila Butt, that, that talks about carrying your dead dog around. And, and you know, she said, at some point, you're, the first time you walk in with, with, with your dog that got run over, it still fairly looks like a dog, and you get some attention, and, and people respond to that pretty well. A month later, you still got that dog. You're not the life of the party, <laughs> okay? And, and sometimes people open up those wounds in order to gain those secondary rewards. Uh, in my world, you know, all human behaviors are reward motivated. I do what I do because it gets me something I want. And and if you either confront the perceived reward or eliminate that reward, the behavior self-eliminates. And I know that sounds awfully cruel. But but when you and I like that idea, you're picking a scab. If you leave it alone, it'll heal. If you leave it alone, it'll go away. you can't pick it anymore. You'll still have a scar. And and it's okay to show people your scars. And I've got, I've got some cool scars. Uh, I've got one that runs right. south all the right. way. Uh, I've had six abdominal surgeries. Wore a colostomy bag for 21 weeks. Got the scar where my bag was. Really good stuff. Jackie and I got into Scar Wars.
2: <laughs>
0: she had a bikini cut for the uh, birth of our daughter who her first two years of her life went in and out of windows. But anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> so, you know, I tell Jackie, hey, I got a better scar than you do. They pulled a human out of me. Okay, so you always have to go with the person thing. But uh, I
2: don't know what
0: happened those times. I don't still react with that same level of pain. Now, the interesting thing about humans and the way our brain's and I love the stuff that Kurt did, Uh, the limbic system is that filter has to go through the little bitty hypothalamus thing that talks to your uh, prefrontal cortex. Uh, that limbic system generalizes pain. And it takes something similar and makes it equal. You get stung by a wasp and let a fly come by you. <laughs> okay? You get dog bit by a doberman and you'll flinch out of your Because your brain can, can... And so we start over generalizing physical and emotional pain. And by the way, The same neurological pathway that runs physical pain runs emotional pain. And a lot of uh, chronic illness, a lot of stuff that doesn't have an MRI to prove it or a CAT scan to prove it or an X-ray to prove it, people who have recurrent chronic medical things are locked in some kind of trauma. And it's really, really interesting what you can do with some specific protocols with hypnosis and some things to change some of that. But you know, if you've got an unhealed emotional wound and your brain is trying to communicate that, and sometimes it, it's just as simple as the intellectual part of your brain telling the emotional part of your brain, Roger that. But sometimes it doesn't know it's there. So you try to give me a message and you call me and I don't answer my phone. And you text me and I don't answer my phone. And you Facebook me and I don't answer my phone. And you gram me or whatever it is you do and I don't respond to that. Well, then you go to my house and you knock on the door, no answer. You ring the doorbell, no answer. You look in the window, I'm sitting in the chair. You bang on the window, that not answer. At some point, you're kicking that door in. Your emotional system says, hello. Hey, bud. Pick up. Hey, text back. Hey, hey. Hello. Boom. And it's going to get your attention if you've got an unhealed emotional deal. Uh, fibromyalgia shows up a lot in our therapy world. And that's not saying there's not an actual degeneration of the myalgia that goes around those fibers. But in the majority of them, there's no medical evidence for it. And we generalize pain. We make things that are similar and they become equal. And grieving does that, and that may be why we pick those gaps. Because things trigger us a lot. And so be careful that you don't make similar become equal. And you watch for the signs of complicated grieving. It's People get almost a post-traumatic stress thing. They get triggered by things that are similar and they become equal. So it triggers them back to that grief. It triggers them back to that loss. It triggers them back to that powerlessness. And if you start seeing that kind of trauma, then you, know, you start talking about, hey, I think this is a complicated grief issue. And you deal with that in, in some very specific ways. Um, the biggest thing in, in dealing with people with, with, in, in your ministry is learning to listen. Period. Somebody says, Lonnie, somebody died in my congregation. I don't know what to say. Thank God. You're not supposed to talk. You're supposed to listen. And that's just it. It's called compassion. A combo word meaning to suffer with. Calm and pasiós. It's that idea of sharing it. Job's friends, when they kept their mouths shut, were rocking the world. It, when they opened their mouths, they blew the whole book of the <laughs> Okay, But they showed up and they sat with Him. They cried and they just sat there for seven days. That's grief ministry. It, we call it the ministry of presence. People don't want to know that you're right. They want to know that you're right there. One of the big mistakes we make in grief counseling is Ryan's aunt dies and I tell him how I felt when my aunt died. He wants to know how I feel that his aunt died. He want to hear about my aunt. And a lot of times we use other people's grief to reprocess our own. And, and sometimes we do some of our ministry, it becomes a self centered kind of thing. Uh, look at John chapter eleven. In John chapter eleven, you can, you know, you can beat a dead horse with this, but you read how many times Jesus indicates that he knows how this story is going to turn out. I bet there's six or seven times. Hey, uh, your friend Lazarus is sick. Well, I'm glad I'm not there, so we glorify God. That's a hint that Jesus knows something's going to happen different at the end of the story, right? They bring in the news. Our friend Lazarus is dead. He says, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sakes. We're going to glorify God. Then he tells those guys, "We're going. Lazarus is asleep, and we're going to wake him up. Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get... Back. Okay, that's the slap's not in the Bible. It should have been slap Because he was plainly talking about Lazarus being dead. I'm going to wake him up. Does Jesus know how this story's going to end? Man, he gets there Martha comes out. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't be dead. Your brother will live again. Oh, I know he'll live again in the resurrection. I ah, am the resurrection. Does Jesus know how this story's going to end? That explain John 11, 35. Jesus wept. Oh, he was weeping at the faithless condition of the... No! He's crying because they're crying. Even though he knows it's going to get better... He cries with them because they're crying. When that little girl in the seventh grade who's going with the boy and they can't go anywhere, and they quit going together where they didn't go in the first place, and she comes in your office crying because they're not going to places they didn't go anyway. <laughs> Statistically you'll be in eight major relationships. Sixty percent of you will be engaged at least one time before you're married. He's a loser, be glad he's gone. No, that's not ministry. You cry with her because she's crying. You minister to her because she's hurting. That's grief ministry. It's suffering with them, not fixing anything. Yes, sir?
1: What do you do if uh, that person never seems to open up? I never, just they continually internalize, internalize, and I shut them up.
0: You ask, what do I do? that's called non-compliance with treatment. I ask them not to come back to the office until they're ready to talk because I'm wasting their time and their money. But what do you do as a minister? You've got to say, you're not being honest with me. You're holding something back. You're shielding. You're protecting. In an attempt to insulate either me or an attempt to insulate you, you're isolating yourself. And so somehow they've got a martyr thing going on and they want to never be better. Some people think, if I start enjoying life, I really didn't love my spouse very well. That's that reinvestment into things that are good. My grandfather got killed when I was a kid. Uh, His sister died. He and his brother were driving to the funeral home to make arrangements. A truck had a blowout and killed both the boys. All three siblings died on the same day. He was two weeks away from retirement, had drawn his first check, and we were going to catch every fish in Calhoun County. And I walked home one day from the ninth grade and he'd gone. And I quit fishing and quit hunting. started going back to the woods and reconnected with what my grandfather and I used to do and heal that. And there's things that you do to say, you know what? We were going to go to Alaska. I'm going anyway. We used to like to go eat ice cream. I'm going to go do that. But so many times we insulate ourselves because it's similar so it's equal and I can't eat ice cream because I can't eat ice cream with her anymore. And you've got to start getting folks to look at what they do have not what they don't have, and reconnect with some of those rituals. And I think that helps them open up. Because you say, what are you avoiding? And why does it hurt so bad to go to church? Well, this is where we where we what, Where you fall all the time? No, we, we enjoyed worship. we love these people. And we praise God. Well, then reconnect to that memory. Because that memory will always be it. You can't take that away from me. I did that. I was there. They were there. You can't remove that. I walk through those hard woods, my grandfather's there, people. And the things I learned about how I shoot and how to sit quietly, all that stuff is still very real. And so sometimes people insulate and it becomes isolation. And I think when people don't open up, some something, something more complicated is going on. I don't know if I gave you enough specific answers, but
1: other other stuff. Yes, sir. Uh, in our congregation we have uh, sister her and her husband were married 51 years. Uh, they were driving to the store. He had a massive stroke, died. Um, now she is a year later uh, still struggling. We just found out that she's uh, diagnosed with uh, dementia. And so it's like the whole thing happens every day. She, it's like Groundhog Day every, wow. every day. And uh, so, any suggestions to me as I continue to try to work with her and her family?
0: I think you have to treat it just like it happened yesterday. I mean, it's, it, that's reality for her. Yes. A person in dementia is alone, afraid, and frightened. Their reality is shifted in such a way that you, and I never say you get into, involved in a person's delusion, uh, but at this point, she re a trauma and she does not have the cognitive ability to unplug that. Maybe some RRT or some hypnosis might work with her. I have no experience with saying whether or not that would work. And and, and you may have to, to just say, I've got to make this death call again and and, and min- reminister to her every single time. If uh, I keep scratching that scab, you'll put a Band-Aid on it every time, won't you? That's what's happening to her. and She's not doing it out of a dysfunction. She's doing it out of a brain issue where she's not responsible for it. So there's no secondary gain for this. It's one of those torturous things where the human mind degenerates. And I guess what I would say is, as best as you can, go over, hold her hand, comfort her in her lucid moments. Hey, this was a year ago. In her unlucid moments, You be patient and compassionate with her. It's a
1: weekly business. Wow.
0: God bless you, sir. That's... Uh, and that's compassion. That's understanding the world from their perspective. John Gottman calls it attunement when you're dealing with spouses. Uh, if you're married to a female, which is a good thing, if you're a male, in today's society, I have to preface that all the time. You're, when your spouse goes through something, attuning to them is, is, a, is an amazing thing. And there's an acronym for attunement. but at Rather than do the complicated acronym, I'll do this. When I count to three, everybody point to your right. One, two, three. A bunch of Tennessee fans in here. (laughs) The right's over there. Okay, if you were standing where I'm standing, looking at what I'm looking at, point to the right. One, two, three. All you did was take my place in the room, look at the room the way I'm looking at it, And we agreed on what was right. Put yourself in the other person's place. Look at the world from the way they're looking at it. And then give them some advice. Tell them what's going on. That's attunement. And In marriages, it's basically being able to tell your spouse, I see the world like you see the world. I don't agree with your view. I don't think your view is rational. I'm not validating your view, but I can see it that way. I see spiders the way Jackie sees spiders when I'm a Jackie. <laughs> Maybe that's a wolf spider. They're not poisonous. They're a, a ground-drilling predator. They don't build nests. They carry the babies on their back. She don't care. A spider. I see that from Jackie's perspective. If it's a snake, it's dead when I'm with Jackie. I can identify dozens of species of snakes. I've shot short legged lizards when I'm with Jackie. Just because, because they're similar, they're equal. She has a fight or flight response that's off the chain. Beautiful. beautiful. Honestly, she can't help herself. When when, it, when she gets triggered, her feet will move. <laughs> she's gone. It's beautiful. Uh, and, and so I know if, if, if I don't take care of it, she's running. I saw her run down a waterfall and back up trying to get away a snake. It's yeah, I had that tone of voice. I saw this little snake. I knew it wasn't a big deal. I knew there was no need to explain to her. It wasn't a big deal. I said, baby. And I heard the little snake, I can't help it. She's explaining and she gathers yonder. If I don't kill it, she will run. So I just kill it and you know, pour know, in innocent a little snakes die all the time. because of her and her intolerance. But I view the world from her place. And she does the same thing with me on some stuff. And so sometimes when somebody is re-traumatized or re-grieving, especially with that dementia, that's reality for her. It's there, and it's real, and you deal with it and you treat it. Uh, Other questions? Yes, ma'am. What
1: do you know about the program
0: Grief Share, and what are your thoughts on that? I don't know anything about it. I'm not a support group guy. Um, I do individual therapy. That seems to be what works best for me. Um... My experiences in in group when I was doing some stuff either at Cedar Lodge or at the Mental Health Center in Marshall County and then in my my actual work in in school was there there are toxic people who show up for group and they dominated and controlled. My solution for that retronutizes everybody that's in the group. (laughs) My default setting is confrontation. Sir, you're disrupting my group. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. You know, that kind of stuff. So I, I, I'm sorry I'm just illiterate on it. I do my, my work with grief in my office setting one-on-one because nobody grieves the same. They, they, they do the same task but never at the same pace. So I just have no experience with it. I feel like in our industry we've had
1: to give, especially kids, permission a lot of times, you know, kids will have a very traumatic event, and then next week, they're, they're okay to go to the football game, or they, they want to go, they don't feel like that society's okay with them to do that. Permission to enjoy themselves, or permission to be happy, or permission to go out to eat with their friends, or things like that, and, and, I, and I felt that, you know, that they read differently, but maybe they need that time with their friends or you know, maybe they need to go to that football game if that's a good positive thing. Well,
0: yeah. As soon as you can return to some normalcy stuff. <laughs> my, my major treatment for depression is you know or chronic pain. Will you feel the same here or feel the same at the mall? Well, if I feel the same both places, go to the mall. I've got chronic pain. Will it hurt worse at home on the couch or will it hurt worse in the deer stand? It'll and hurt it hurts the same.
1: How people perceive them. Then.
0: Well, I tell people you, you don't live you your life on your perception of other people's expectations. Make sure you write that down. Do not live your life on your perception of other people's expectations. Don't parent your kids if you're a youth minister with a small family on your perception of other people's expectations. I make decisions in the life of my daughter based on what God approves of and not what the brethren approve of. Amen. Okay? I make decisions about my wife based on what God approves of, not about what the brethren approves of. And we tend to be this let other people control what we think they're going to approve. I made peace a long time ago when I make people uncomfortable sometimes. I don't do it on purpose. I don't do it to be a non-conformist. I just understand I'm not going to please everybody. So I'm going to please God and that works for me. And I don't mean that to be arrogant or, or whatever, but, but that's what I'm afraid.
1: When I lost Beverly, uh, about nine months, I uh, took Susan out for coffee. And my daughter says, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, I said, wait a minute. so well, you've got to have at least a year of degree. And I said, uh, who, who is that? is that?" <laughs> says, it's on the internet. It's all over the it's internet. All <laughs> it's a, 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 well, she's a French model. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, sorry. And, you know. We had our discussion with tears. Is uh, you don't know how I you that's don't right. know that's right
0: how long that takes, and I can grieve and still enjoy myself. I can love this person that I love and love this this other person, you know. And and that has to be something where you go. I'm not worried about what you think about this decision I'm making. I'm doing this because it works for me. And uh, a lot of times, kids are very sensitive. To adult expectation, um, and sometimes we're murdering our kids because of it. Because your number one category of kids who kill themselves are your all A superstar, top of the line academic athletes, because they're living with this perceived pressure and expectation. I never mean, passed out the other day in the office. I asked this this mom. I said, "Would it be okay to you give your this young man brought home a bee? She said, "I wish he'd bring home a beer too, and have some fun." I said, son, your mom just gave you permission to slack a little bit in in school. He's a 7th grader and suffering from anxiety and ulcers because he wants to please his teachers. And she's paying me to teach him how to be a C student. It's
2: awesome. (laughs) It's it's good stuff. I love my job. Yes.
1: Uh, One of the things uh, that I've seen, how do you deal with the two... The two extremes. Like I've seen, I've seen kids that their, their parents divorce, or you know, family member that they're close to dies, and they don't. I mean, it looks like they don't care. And then I've also seen people that, uh, you know, their cat dies. Three years later, they're still they're still grieving over the loss of their cat. And so, some kids are wired that way. And it is what it is does
0: what it does. Frequency and intensity will eventually change. You communicate with them enough to find out if this is their real process or if they're gaming some way. If you know, a lot of kids will tell you, "My parents are doing stuff." And I don't care, and they don't mean they don't care. It means they're hurting deeply, and you've got to know them well enough. You know, if any your emotions, I'm either not grieving or I'm grieving too much. God gave us our emotions. Godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. Not to be regretted. If I feel guilty about something, it produces a positive change. Okay, Look at Judas and look at Peter. On the night Jesus was arrested, one disciple admitted knowing Him. That was Judas. And Judas self-destructs. Peter denies Him three times and Peter just reinstated. Guilt is guilt. When it does what it's supposed to do, it produces balance and harmony. When guilt produces distress... Dysfunction or destruction, then there's a cognitive part missing. So if grief produces distress, destruction, or dysfunction, something else is going on. Now this little kid who's still sensitive about their cat, that may be of those sensitive people. This person who says, "Hey, my parents divorced. So no big deal." Maybe one of those people who's very resilient. And you've got to look for signs of distress, destruction, or dysfunction. And if you get those, those are warning signs that my grieving over my cat gives me permission to act a certain way and I'm getting rewarded by having a, a, a cat fit when I get triggered. Okay?
2: The, uh,
1: Does that make sense? Okay. One, one specific example that really, I mean, it really kind of stood out to me and still to this day I can hear the kids saying this, is that they they had kind of gone through a string of, of, of things. Their, their their parents divorced. Their grandfather died, and then like a couple other things. And they came up to me in my office and they said they said I've read some things about grief, and these are all things I should be very upset on, but I, I don't feel anything. And he, they said, the things that I've read says, that's the characteristics of a sociopath, and I'm wondering if I'm a sociopath, is what the kid said. I said, if you're not a sociopath, <laughs> You're great. Know. That's, that's pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that that was the, the biggest thing that concerned them wasn't the, the, that is the, the, I wondered if I'm going to start killing cats and burying them in the backyard. You know? That's awesome. <laughs> uh,
0: Kids do math in weird ways, I'm telling you. I mean, it, 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 it's pretty funny. Like I said yesterday in the sexuality class, you know, kids will look at uh, men in sexual situations and have erections. And they think, oh no, I saw men in sexual... And, and I must be gay. Well, no, you're, you're 14 years old. You have erections that you can't control, you know. And... Uh, I hope this is not inappropriate, but I tell the 14-year-olds, just because your lightsaber lights up don't make you a Jedi.
2: <laughs>
0: so, here this little guy is, and he's got, you know, he's got these things, and he says, hey, I can check these boxes, I'm a sociopath. No, you're probably still in shock because you've had four grief, boom, 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 and your mind had not woken up yet to feel these things. Okay? And I would probably tell him, you know, you start to get into the feeling mode, you get re-traumatized. Feeling mode, re-traumatized. <coughs> feeling mode, traumatized Now, this little person who's grieving their cat, I guarantee you there's a deeper tra- a deeper grief somewhere, and they've taken something that's similar and made the same. So they're grieving over, over the cat's not lost. It's something else, unless they're just one of those sensitive kids. Does that does that make sense?
2: Okay.
1: How do you spell Saber? I need to get that right for Twitter. Pardon? How do you spell Saber? I need to get that right for Twitter.
0: If you're British, it's R E. If you're American, it's E-R. <laughs> Alec Guinness was a British actor, so it's it with an
2: hater. <laughs>
1: Well, think, yeah,
2: it's very, very oh, wow.
0: I've accepted the reality I'm experiencing my emotions I'm going to read and adjust to the new norm And I'm going to look for another job
2: I'm going to I've got to I I get back. a six-pack <laughs> Alright,
0: what else? This is a Greek class, no one you be laughing <laughs> Let me give you some perspective just to share with people about death and dying. I don't answer questions about the afterlife because I can't. I don't believe the story of rich man and Lazarus is a dissertation on what happens when you die. I believe Jesus is using accommodated language to a Jewish audience and met with their expectations. I believe he's, He says, this is their theology. i got to make a point here that just because you're rich ain't going to heaven and just because you're poor you ain't going to hell. I don't think it's a discussion meant to talk about that. Now, I can't make that jive. Solomon says, the dead know nothing under the sun. Every time a New Testament writer describes death, they talk about sleep. Yet at the same time, Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be in paradise. If people are dead and unconscious and not in some paradise waiting room, where did Moses and Elijah come from on the Mount of Transfiguration? When Samuel is brought up by the witch of Endor, he says, why have you disturbed me? So i got a lot of things that I can't more questions than answers. Number one, I don't talk about the afterlife with folks. The Bible says the point of the man wants to die after this judgment. What happens between those two points, I don't think you can prove. I don't think it matters what you believe so you can do your own thing. I won't touch it. Okay, are we okay with that? And I'm comfortable. If you're not, <laughs> okay, you teach, you can teach a rich man language like you want to. It's inconsistent with some things, uh, you know. When when the Lord comes back, He's going to raise the dead. Why are we in paradise and then come back to our graves and pop back out? Weird. Okay, I, I I can't be consistent in my theology, so I don't touch it. Okay, but there are some things that I can be consistent with in my theology. When David's son dies, or the child dies after Bathsheba, David says, I, he can't come to me, I'll go to him. So they still exist somewhere. Now, what is their conscious state? What is their awareness? I don't know. Okay, I've had surgery. There's this neat thing that happens when you have surgery. You go to sleep six hours later, you open your eyes, and you don't, and you feel like you just been, did this. you got parts missing. Really cool. <laughs> okay, and, and, and I'm not sure if that's not a capacity of our intelligence when we die. I can't prove it. But what I do know is there's a piece of us that is eternal. This ain't it, by the way. But there's a piece of us that is eternal. Is the sun brighter at noon or brighter at midnight? Where's my science teacher?
2: Thank you, Mr. Jones. Okay, John
0: David had the right answer too, but just one of my science. Is the sun hotter in July or hotter in February? The effect of the sun changes bright, dark, hot, cold based on our proximity to the sun. When people die, their brightness is not diminished. Their love is not diminished. Their value is not diminished. Their being your parent is not diminished. But their proximity, our relational status has been altered. They've gone from being physical to totally spiritual. And just because there's a gap in there doesn't mean it still doesn't exist. So there's some real interesting things you can do that sound a little metaphysical. You know, if if I put a piece of ice on the the counter here and as it starts melting, I go, someone's stealing my ice. You know, your ice is changing into a different form. Bereavement, that old word, bereavement. Is to be robbed. Someone robbed me of my loved one. No, no, no. They're changing forms. They ain't gone anywhere. But your proximity to them is very, very different. And that's a theological discussion I I have with kids. Uh, Look, if you will, at the 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the last couple of verses in chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Therefore, we do not lose heart. I'm not discouraged. I'm not depressed. Maybe even I'm not grieving. We do not lose heart. Something affecting us emotionally or attitudinally. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. This stuff here, not improve with age. Okay? Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Something's happening that you can't see. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This stuff here is called light and temporary. And the worst thing you can experience here is considered light and temporary. And something permanent, eternal, far, far outweighs it. Keep reading. And we do not fix our eyes on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For the seen is temporary, but the unseen is eternal. A perspective on death and dying and on grieving is it all depends on what you want to focus on. Am I going to grieve the fact that I traded in a beat up rental to get something much nicer? No, probably not. That's not them in the graveyard. That's not them, but the, that's something they drove and are done with it. And what they're getting is much, much, much better. It'll never hunger, it'll never thirst, it'll never cry, it'll never be afraid, it'll never sin. So, why am I crying? Well, maybe because I miss them, but I'm not crying for them, I'm crying for me. Because what is unseen is eternal. Now, we know. That's a really cool faith point. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. You know the difference in a tent and a house? You tear a tent down real quick. And we put up with stuff in tents we don't put up with in our houses. Jackie did not like tent camp. She's not a bug person, lizard person, snake person, dark person. She will go camp in a tent on Cumberland Island because there's horses there that run in the surf she take her camera and take pictures of those horses. And she'll put up with a tent to take pictures of the horses. But without the horses, she's not being in a tent. (laughs) And and, and what happens in a tent is not going to happen in our house. I promise you that. Our house is going to have air conditioning and it (laughs) will be bug free. And that's just it. If this tent we live in, temporary, torn down real easy, it's not a permanent dwelling, it's not made out of very substantial stuff, if this tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building made from God, an eternal house in the heaven not built by human hands. And then he talks about we want to be unclothed, but we don't to be unclothed from this body doesn't mean we're going to be naked or desolate, but we want to be clothed with the heavenly dwelling and does some, some really interesting stuff. and then look down uh, verse four, "For while we are in this tent we groan and are burdened. It's tough to live in this tent. We groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Folks, once you understand that as soon as I get rid of this, I get something else, you can get tired of this pretty quick. We want to be somewhere else. If the thought of death frightened you, rethink it. Uh, I stayed on this farm in Missouri last week and did a little youth rally and then we did some hunting. They've got a ranch hand there named Jesus. Seuss was working with the son-in-law helping put some fences up on the lower thing. They exchanged phone numbers. He said, early one morning his phone rang. He picked it up and the caller ID said, Jesus.
2: <laughs>
0: How would you feel if Jesus called? Would it fill you with trepidation? Or would you be anxious to answer the call? He have a reservation in my father's house. At 2 o'clock today, I'll take it. We don't want to be unclothed. We, we groan. Not not for this, but for that. Keep reading. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, what's the difference between being mortal and immortal? <coughs> Temporary and Temporary eternal. You know, <coughs> the girls read those silly vampire novels. Get a real vampire, please. Vampires don't glitter. They're not anorexic either. But they have a little iron, but they're not anorexic. I mean, you know, you're just stu- I had this little girl in my practice, just this quiet little waif. She came in, sat down. Mom didn't stay in the room with her. I said, so, uh, how are you? Where do you go, Scoot Johnson? Uh, do you play sports? No. you like music? No. Do you like artwork? No. What do you like to read? You don't read those silly vampire novels, do you? -hmm. (laughs) Oh, don't tell me you like those ridiculous vampire boys. No, buff werewolf
2: boys.
0: (laughs) 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 The whole room. Anyway, in those silly novels, the immortals don't die and the mortals do. So what swallows up mortality? Death, right? Read that verse. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What is mortal is swallowed up by? Life. Wow. When Lottie Beth was little, she had a hamster. That's a glorified rat with a short tail. It died. Now, Mr. Therapist should deal with that. <laughs> So you're sitting in there talking about the little hamster dead. And you say, baby doll, everything that lives, dies. And she looks at you and she goes, are you going to die? Baby doll, everything that lives, dies. Is mama going to die? Yes, son. Everything that lives, dies. Hamsters don't live as long as dogs. Dogs don't live as long as people. People don't live as long as trees. But everything on the planet that lives dies. And she put that little fat hand on her chest, big blue eyes. Am I going to die? Yes, baby. You're going to die too. I had to call her back when I understood this verse. Not everything that lives dies, but everything that dies lives. Mortality is swallowed up by life everything that dies lives and it is God who has prepared us for this very purpose you've been designed to go through this temporary stage and hit something else and you don't get rid of this because of death you get rid of this to get life and God designed us for that very purpose and gave us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, folks, when you talk to people about grief, and they understand that death's not the end of anything, death's not a big bad monster, death's a door. And you walk through it, and that's when the good stuff begins. Because this is temporary, this is light, this is momentary. But there's something out there that was purposed from the foundation when God gave us eternal spirits. We've come from God and we're going back to God. And I start talking to teenagers about grief. You do this just like Kyle talked about when he talked about teaching about uh, uh, fundamentals of, of apologetics. You don't wait until somebody's dead or somebody has died to teach them this. You instill in your teenagers a spiritual self-identity. I am a soul. I don't have a soul. I am an eternal spirit. And when I have that as a spiritual self-identity, then death is that thing that I just walk through to get something else. It doesn't end all my fun. It doesn't end all my life. It doesn't end all my connections. It doesn't end all my relationships. When, that which is when mortality is swallowed up by life and it is God who prepares for this very thing. Folks, it's graduation day. Paul talks about, I fought a good fight, I finished the course, the time of my departure is at hand. Departure in that Greek word is the word anelucin. It's what they did to a ship they take all the tackle off of it. Take all the cargo of it. they take the rudder off of it. They'd tie the sails in place. They'd haul it out to the open sea and they'd cut it loose. And then the ship could run the wind without anybody controlling it, without any burdens. Without, and when Paul says, at the time of my departure, he's not talking about leaving. He's talking about getting cut loose. I'm free at last. I don't have any of this stuff. And if you've never finished anything with a burden and got to put that burden down, oh, man, that, that, that's unbelievable. The, the SWAT team PT test is run with a 17-pound body armor vest. You run 39 laps every six laps. You perform a task. You carry a shield and a pistol. You jump over a fence. You carry a batting ram. You drag a 200-pound dummy. You run that test. And at the end of 23 minutes, if you're 2301, thank you. Take it next year. You're not on the team. Anything under 23 minutes, you're on the team. I'm the third oldest guy to ever take it. Second oldest guy to ever pass it. You run that thing. And at the end of it, you make that final lap. You run down the stretch. And you cross that line. A couple of big guys grab you. The first thing they do is take that vest off of you. Man, good job. And they hug you. And they hold you. And they give you water. It's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. I finished my race. My I'm taking that heavy vest off. And it's over. We teach our kids death is going home, not leaving anywhere. We instill that into them on the front end. We deal with people who are grieving about death. We've taught them death from a spiritual self-identity standpoint, not from a humanistic Oh, this is a tragic standpoint. Now, ma'am, you had one comment, uh, and I ignored you three times.
2: Oh, I yes. A okay. Uh, you, uh, you probably are familiar with this.
1: I read it somewhere and cannot find the author for it. That for a Christian, the light at the end
2: of the tunnel is an escape hatch where God is waiting for us. Obviously, it had to come
0: from a submariner. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I like that idea. You're going to meet God. You're going to meet Jesus. You're going to the place that you've been designed to go. And that's good stuff. Any other questions or comments? American Academy of Bereavement. Anything written by William Ward is good stuff. And uh, thank you
2: for your kind attention all week, and especially for your attention today. Thank you guys very much.